Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning we are studying verses 13 through 17, and those are the verses I'd like us to read. So as you, as you are finding your way there, let's stand. As we read these words, let's just remember that uh, these are inspired by God and written to a particular audience a long time ago, and yet by God's providence, absolutely, perfectly applicable to everyone in this room today, and by God's providence, very timely for us. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, may your Holy Spirit magnify your authority in our hearts and minds this morning, and call us to obedience to Christ, to whom you have delegated all authority. May we joyfully submit to him and to all others who he has given authority to. We, we pray, Father, that you would help us to understand rightly the things that we are about to study and that we would apply them with great joy understanding the significance of these things to who we are as elect exiles. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder, just by show of hands, how many of us remember the first movie that we saw in a theater? Raise your hand if you remember the first movie that you saw in a theater. Okay. Some of you are way too young to not remember the first movie that you saw in a theater. That's a little troubling. The first movie that I saw in a theater, I was, I was about five years old, was The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, it started an obsession for me, I'll be honest with you. But one thing that was a little bit puzzling to me, Luke Skywalker and his buddies, they're obviously the good guys, right? But they, they were called the Rebellion. And I couldn't figure that out. Because my, my parents apparently had done a pretty good job up to that point, teaching me the rebellion is wicked. And so I, I, there was some cognitive dissonance as I was watching the first few minutes of that movie or 
however long it took me to get totally mesmerized by the lightsabers. And then I didn't really think about it much for 35 years until this new crop of movies came out. So these recently we've had some new Star Wars movies where they basically took the old scripts and put them into a blender and out popped a female Han Solo. And she said in one of these recent movies, this is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. And it came flooding back to me. Oh, yeah. The good guys are rebels in these movies. They're championing rebellion. If you think about this, I mean, this is really popular in the movies. Almost every movie that is marketed toward our teens has an evil government of adults trying to kill teenagers and they are forced to rebel against them. I mean, we got the Hunger Games and Divergent and the Maze Runner. And we, we, we could look at Hollywood and say, horrible Hollywood pushing this stuff on us. Hollywood produces what sells, right? And if you want to sell movie tickets to human beings, you don't do that by telling stories of quiet submission to authority. Because rebellion is hardwired into the human heart by the fall. Everyone descended from Adam is a rebel. We're born this way, rebelling against God, deserving his eternal wrath. Of course, we talk about the gospel all the time. Christ saves us from the penalty and power of sin and from the the power of death. He transforms us into servants of God so that part of this wonderful gospel story is that, that now we're transformed into different people and submission to authority for the believer is a premier way that we show the truth of the gospel that we declare. And if you think about how our culture champions suspicion of authority, and celebrates resistance to authority, it is obvious what a wonderful thing submission to authority is to the mission of the church if what we want is to demonstrate that the gospel is true, that it transforms people from rebels into servants of God. In the middle of this this letter, we have this section that extends from 2.11 to 4.11, and in that big chunk, Peter's pushing home this idea that to do good is essential to, the, to, to our mission as elect exiles. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is composed of, that, that proclamation is composed of obviously verbally sharing the, the, the truths of the gospel. Peter's pushing home this idea that Living conspicuously godly lives is essential to that as well. We must live lives that show the truth of the gospel. So he wants us to commend the truth of the gospel with our lives here in these verses that we've just read by submitting to authority. So he has just imparted to us his main imperative, which is the first point in your notes that we must submit to government, governmental authorities. We must submit to the governing authorities. So let's look again at verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
Now, what, is, what does this mean to be subject? It means to subordinate your will to the will of another. Not to conform your will to the will of another, but to subordinate it to the will of another. And it assumes that there are going to be times when there's disagreement. You disagree with this other person. And when that happens, you act in accordance with the will of that other person, not your own. So in this case, he's talking about the governing authorities. In chapter 3, Peter uses the word obey interchangeably with, with submission or subjection. So most, most Greek lexicons would give obey as, as an acceptable translation of this word. Be in subjection to whom? To every human institution, Peter says. Every authority structure is the idea. And the apostle is going to give other examples of this shortly. Um, the the master-slave relationship, then the authority structures within the home. Sum, submission to the governing authorities is what these verses that we've just read pertain to. Submit to the governing authorities, whether the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him. In, in other words, submit to the government at all levels, and, and, and if we we're to take these words, you know, we don't have an emperor, but if we take these words, we apply them to, to our context, we could say, submit to the federal government, submit to the state government, submit to the local government, the police, the dog catcher, the EPA, the zoning board, wherever governmental authority is found, submit to it, obey the law, all of it, Christians. Because we proclaim a gospel of freedom from slavery to lawlessness. Because that's our message. We should be the most law-abiding people on the planet. Peter sprinkles reasons for this throughout these verses. Okay, So one reason that we should submit, it's the next point, next point in your notes, is, that be, is because we're servants of God. We must submit as servants of God. They seem kind of strange to think that way. We, we serve others because we serve God. Well, it makes perfect sense. So, so first of all, let's, let's look at verse 15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Look at, look at that phrase, by doing good in verse 15. By doing what good? What, what is he talking about? He's, he, in, right here, he's not just talking about good in general. He is, he's thinking back to the phrase that he already used back in verse 13, which is being in subjection. By being in subjection, we silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's God's will that by being subject to the governing authorities, we would silence ignorance. So more on the silencing, the silencing thing in just a minute. But our being in subjection to the governing authorities is God's will. He wants us to submit to authority. And that's, that's enough of a reason. The he, Peter should be able to stop right there. When I, when I was a kid and I would ask my parents why I had to do something, occasionally they would just say, what? Some of you know. Because I said so. Now, more enlightened people in recent years have said, you should never do that. You, you should always give reasons why. That is the reason why. Isn't it? That's a biblical reason why. How many times in the Old Testament did God give a law and then follow it immediately with, I am Yahweh. What, what's he saying? This is why you do what I just said. Because I'm God. For that reason, 
I think it's a good idea for parents occasionally just say, the answer is because I said so. We obey authority. That's, that's the idea that imparts. It's a, good, it's, it, it's a good enough reason to obey. Just authority says so. Now, God occasionally gives us other reasons. That one is enough that, that, that God says so. That, that's enough. This is the will of God, Peter says. There's, there's also a phrase that we passed over back in, in verse 13 that indicates that all of this is really about serving the Lord. Look back up at verse 13. Close to the beginning of the verse, he says, For the Lord's sake, be in subjection for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So Peter's already called us to live conspicuously godly lives so that others will glorify God. That's the idea here. So do this for the Lord's glory. Do this for the Lord's sake. This is all about making Him glorious to the world around us. Now look at the last phrase of verse 16. It comes up again, this idea that we are doing this because we are servants of God. The, very, the last phrase is, as servants of God. Now grammar nerds, in the Greek text, that phrase reaches up all the way back to chapter, I mean, verse 13, and modifies that, that first imperative. Be subject to the governing authorities as servants of God. And a, a, a better way to translate the word servant is slave. Be subject to the governing authorities as slaves of God. We are to submit because we're slaves of God. Paul teaches in Romans 13, all authority is from God. Romans 13, 1, there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, where, where would Paul get such an idea? Probably from Jesus. We, 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 we began last week with, with Matthew 28. Um, yeah, Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission. Great Commission begins with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth and on earth has been given to me. So the Father gave all authority to the Son. If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, then anyone else who enjoys authority on this earth does so as it is delegated by Jesus Christ. Now, Peter implies here what Paul makes explicit in Romans 13, that the government is a tool of God to discourage evil, and to encourage good. Peter says, the governor is sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. Paul pushes that idea a little bit further. He says, that governor, that, that government official, that person is a servant of God. And a little bit later in Romans 13, he calls them a minister of God. And here's the Holy Spirit-inspired inference from that principle. This is, this is Romans 13 too. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. When we submit to the governing authorities, we're submitting to God because all authority comes from God. We, we hear these kind of things these kind of things, and, and we're, now we're people who love Star Wars, right? And we're people who like to buy tickets to see movies like Star Wars because that appeals to us, and so we may be thinking, there's got to be exceptions here. There's got to be a lot of exceptions. Well, the scriptures would, would, would say that there, that there are some, um, and we will, we, will, we will talk about those, but does the fact that, does, the, does that, do, do these governing authorities have to honor God in order for us 
to submit to them. In other words, if they are abusing their authority, does that mean that we should resist them? No, it does not. Neither. Uh, Peter doesn't go there. Paul doesn't go there in Romans 13. Both of these texts tell us to submit to every authority. Neither text gives us a single caveat. And again, Paul says that all authority is from God. To, to resist authorities, to resist God. Later in this section of, of 1 Peter, the apostle is going to, he's going to apply this in the workplace. He's going to apply it in the home. And in those contexts, he explicitly calls for submission to authorities that are unjust and disobedient to God. So, so he, he removes from us an excuse to resist authority if that authority is unjust or disobedient to God. In fact, he does the opposite. He says, submit to those authorities. If we follow the storyline of the Old Testament, both in the historical books and, and in the prophets, we find that God raises up both godly governmental authorities and ungodly governmental authorities. Please read the Old Testament. This, this, is, a, this is clear, right? Even ungodly authorities, and, and this, is, this, is, this is even more clear than, than the godly ones. The ungodly ones are tools in the hands of God to accomplish his sovereign will. And the Old Testament validates then what Paul and Peter are teaching in the New Testament, which is that all authority is delegated by God. And ultimately, all authority is serving God's sovereign plan. So when these New Testament brothers tell us, submit to the governing authorities, they mean all governing authorities. It is one of the providential geniuses of God to have these two men writing these things to us. Because when we realize their historical context, it really removes from us almost any excuse for disobedience or insurrection. Because bo both of these men wrote during the reign of Nero, Roman Emperor Nero. Here, here's what the Roman historian Tacitus records about Nero's treatment of Christians. Before killing the Christians, Nero used to amuse the people with them. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. It was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. That's the guy in power, as Peter and Paul are writing, writing be subject to the governing authorities. Now, it's debatable whether these exact cruelties were taking place when Peter and Paul wrote their instructions. But these men were not strangers to cruelties at the hands of governing authorities when they did write these things. I mean, they're followers of Jesus Christ, right? The gospel that they preach is about a man who was unjustly crucified. They preach this and they call us to follow his example. Paul writes in numerous places about the suffering that he experienced at the hands of, of the authorities. Peter, we know, was beaten in those early chapters of Acts and later imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 5, what do we read about Peter's response to that? Being beaten for the sake of the gospel. Oh, he was thrilled that he was found worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They never call for insurrection or 
resistance of any kind. Rather, when these men sat down to write instruction to Christians about what should be our disposition toward government, their instruction was an unequivocal submit to the governing authorities. Now, does this mean that there are no exceptions whatsoever? I, I believe the scriptures indicate that there, there may be. Um, all authority belongs to God. Our ultimate obedience is to him. So anytime a lesser authority commands us to do something that contradicts the clear revealed will of God in the scriptures, our attitude should be that of Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. If an earthly authority commands me to do something that con conflicts with a biblical command from God, I must respectfully resist that earthly authority and obey God. Of course, the example in Acts 5 is, is that the, the Jewish authorities commanded the apostles, look, you've got to stop spreading the name of Jesus. And their, their response is, we must obey God rather than men. Regarding that same issue, back in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John answered these same authorities. They said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. That's, that's how the apostles viewed the situation. They're in a position of having to either obey God or obey the earthly authority. And so when they said to those earthly authorities, you must judge, they were opening themselves up to whatever punishment that earthly authority decided to deliver. So th they were saying, we must obey God even if that means suffering your judgment, which they did later in chapter 5, as I've already mentioned, they were beaten for continuing to, to preach the gospel. Their, their disposition toward, toward that authority is very instructive for us. They were respectful even in their disobedience to that authority. There was no shaking of the fist. There, there was no warning of God's judgment but they simply explained they had to do what they had to do because their ultimate allegiance to God and they accepted whatever earthly consequences would come from that. Threats to their own lives, to the lives of others, did not justify insurrection in the minds of the apostles. They did not say, this is unjust and we're going to overthrow you. No, they, we, we must obey God and we'll receive whatever consequences you bring. That is tremendously instructive regarding when we do resist, how we should resist. Take my life, take my stuff, take my freedom. I'm not going to overthrow you. God gives and takes authority. I'm just going to obey him. I'm entrusting my soul to a creator while doing good. That, that's Peter's message here in 1 Peter. We, we, we are servants of God. As, as elect exiles, our primary aim is to be all about proclaiming his gospel. Our primary aim is not to shape and change governments. We, we, we should be willing to suffer all kinds of injustices. There, there are examples of our brothers and sisters doing that right now all over the globe. It, it is relatively rare, as are justifiable reasons to resist authority, our, our, our default toward authority should be to submit to the governing authorities because we are servants of God. Another reason to submit. Another reason to submit. 
we must submit in order to silence the slanderers. Submit in order to silence the slanders. Let's look at all of verses 15 and 16 again. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Again, the phrase doing good, the doing good that silences the ignorance of foolish people is submission to the governing authorities. I mentioned last week that, that one of the typical charges made against these Christians to whom Peter is writing is that they were subversive because of their refusal to participate in the worship of false gods. False worship was, was such an integral part of commerce and community that believers were regarded with great suspicion for not participating, as if they were trying to upset the whole fabric of society. So by submitting to the authorities, Christians were able to demonstrate these accusations. These are false. We're, we're not troublemakers at all. The, the, the ignorance of foolish people, that, that's a reference to the slanderers back up in verse 12 that we looked at last week. We could say that verse 15 is an application of verse 12 to our relationship with the governing authorities. One of the ways that we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable is by obeying the governing authorities. And keep in mind that end game from verse 12. Peter wants these people to be silenced about us, about the, the, the bad things that they're saying about us, but ultimately he wants them to be vocal about God's glory. Remember? This is, this, oh, we've got to keep this thing in in the, the context of our evangelistic mission. Peter wants our conduct to be part of our evangelism leading to the conversion of these people. It's a powerful witness to the truth when believers are the best citizens in the land, never getting into trouble, always being productive. And it's especially powerful when they're being mistreated by the government and they still obey. Verse 16, he says, live as people who are free. I already, already mentioned that the last phrase in verse 16 modifies the imperative in verse 13. This one does too. Be subject to the human authorities as people who are free. We, we're free in the sense that Christ has bought our redemption from sin and death. Remember, remember that ransom language back from 118. We were, we were bought by the precious blood of Jesus. We're free in the sense that we used to be slaves to sin and death, but now our wills have been freed to do what's right. We talked a good bit about this a couple of weeks ago. In the beginning, God created, God created all things. He gave man the glorious mission of bearing his holy image in the world. But man sinned against God and became enslaved to sin and death. And that slavery, we, as we've, we've discussed, is a delightful slavery. In his natural state, the fallen man is trapped in sinful passions. He cannot will himself to follow God, cannot will himself to please God, but it's a delightful slavery in that he loves it. He, rebellion is what he wants. It's like in a, he's, a, he's a kid in a candy store. This is exactly what the fallen man wants. Everyone descended from Adam is born in that condition of rebellion 
and slavery. And the due penalty for that is eternity in hell. But God, because of His great mercy and love, sent His Son to conquer that slavery to death and to give life to sinners. Jesus did that by living a perfect life in, in our place, by dying an atoning death in our place on the cross. Three days later, He was raised from the dead so that He conquered death, He earned the right to give life to everyone who repents and trusts in Him. Those whom He has, has chosen to save are given new life, they're given repentance, they're given faith, their wills are freed. Freed from sin, freed eternally from death. They're no longer enslaved to the futile passions of this world. So our submission as believers, submission to authority, is not given out of weakness, but rather we, we, are, we, we, we submit as free people. We submit freely, making use of wills that have been liberated from sin. At the same time, Peter says, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Real freedom liberates us to do good. To use freedom in Christ as a license to sin shows that one really hasn't been freed. Because a life of debauchery is the definition of slavery. We're no longer the slaves to sin, but rather we are slaves to God, as Peter points out here. Our wills being freed to do good. There are echoes of Romans 6 and Galatians 5 here. If you want to jot down some cross-references to look at later. Galatians 5, Romans 6. So we, we, we don't respond to the demands of government slavishly, but we obey from a position of strength and freedom. We've been freed to do this. There's what sounds like a paradox here. We are to submit as free people and as slaves to God. Sounds like a contradiction maybe. But slavery to God is freedom according to the scriptures. Service to God is what we were created for. You know, airplanes don't make very good boats. Because that's not what they were designed for. Human beings were created to image God, to serve God in this world when sin entered the world, it messed that up so that, that since then man has not been functioning as he was designed to do. When Christ redeems us from sin and, and, and returns us to slavery to God, now we're, we're free to, to live as we were designed to live. God, God created man to flourish as his image bearer. Man will never enjoy greater freedom than when he lives in the confines of God's good design for him. This is, this is a wonderful thing. We, we are slaves of God, free. And when we, when we bring that attitude to our response to authority, oh, it's a, it is a powerful apologetic for our godliness and therefore for the gospel. Peter, Peter wants us to submit to the governing authorities because we are servants of God, and to silence those slandering us for the sake of the growth of the gospel. And then he gives a final application of these things in verse 17, which is our final point. We must be models of honor. We must be models of honor. 
Let's look at verse 17 now. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor everyone. First little sentence. Something like a, a summary of the following three imperatives. Believers are to, to give honor appropriate to everyone. And then he goes into more detail about these three different relationships in the life of a believer. All of which could be considered ways of honoring in those relationships. So the, the, the first of those three is love the brotherhood. And that ties back to the instruction that he gave us back in 118. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another from a sincere or from a pure heart. Love toward one another is a primary indication to the world that we actually belong to Jesus. What did Jesus say in John 13, 34 and 35? After he gives that great love command, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love one another. Fear God. God is to be revered far more highly than any human being. And so we get a, a, a different, higher word here. He's to be honored so highly that we would call it fear. We talked about fearing God back in chapter 1 as well. So you can see that Peter isn't just grabbing random stuff out of the air. He's, he's returning to themes that he's already talked about in, in the first chapter. He's bringing them into the context of our earthly relationship to authority. There, there's a kind of... of, of reverence that should be reserved for God alone. Numerous commentators note that there seems to be a loose allusion here to Proverbs 24-21, where, where we read, Fear the Lord and the King. Fear them both. But these commentators point out that if Peter is reaching back to Proverbs, he's intentionally drawing a distinction between what God deserves and what human authority deserves. In other words, this is, just, this is just another way to show that God is the one that we owe ultimate allegiance to and reverence to. Fear God, honor the emperor. Which is the last one we find. Honor the emperor. Consider with me how significant those three English words are in this text. Honor the emperor. Are they superfluous? I don't think so. I think this is very significant because it raises the bar above where we might leave it had the apostle just said, be subject to the governing authorities. We are not only to obey, but to honor. Now, I would guess that most of us are probably doing pretty well obeying the law. We're probably doing okay in these, this outward visible thing of being subject to the governing authorities. But when we get down to this, honor the emperor, how, how are we doing there? Get a little uncomfortable. What does this mean? Honor. To honor someone. One lexicon reads, to show high regard for, or to revere, to revere, to, to show reverence. The, the New Living Translation translates to this word, respect. That's a good word. Respect the emperor. 
Respect the governing authorities. Revere the governing authorities. Show high regard for the governing authorities. But, but respect is earned, not given, right? Respect is earned. You ever heard that? Respect is earned, not given. That is an unbiblical concept. It's not just a, a concept that can't be found in the gospel, in, in, in the Bible. It's a concept that contradicts the Bible. Respect, honor, is commanded. It's commanded. We, we see it right here, First Peter. It's an imperative. We're commanded to respect the governing authorities and all other human authorities because all authority is from God. Now, who, who are we thinking about right now? Where, where, where does your mind go? You start trying to think, okay, how do I apply this in the 21st century? Some of us are probably thinking about President Trump. Disliked by, by many, both left-leaning and right-leaning Christians. And I've heard a lot of Christians say a lot of disrespectful things about the president. I've heard a lot of Christians say a lot of disrespectful things about President Obama. In both cases, justifying these comments by saying things like, he's just so ungodly. Look at the word emperor in verse 17. Honor the emperor. And let's just be reminded, who was the emperor when that was written? Nero. President Trump does not need to earn our respect. God commands it. He commands us to respect him in our hearts as well as our mouths. We know from the Lord what the Lord Jesus teaches. God is not interested in lip service. He's after our hearts. And so for us to just hold back our lips about the things that we say about governing authorities, Jesus is not impressed. Because God is concerned about our hearts. So we, we honor authority with our hearts and with our mouths. God commands respect for Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. He commands respect for Mike DeWine. God Almighty commands us. Not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. But it's, it's written so deeply into the American psyche Resistance to authority and submission, um, so suspicion of, a, of authority that, that many in the church think nothing of disregarding this biblical command, especially as it relates to the federal government. Please listen to me. The actions and writings of our founding fathers should not guide our consciences on this issue. The writings of the Holy Spirit of God as recorded in Scripture, should guide our consciences. And there are many places where those two things diverge. Our ungodly willingness to dishonor governmental authority typically shows up in our just casual conversations. That's where it shows. starts in our heart, but it shows in these casual conversations that we have in person, a lot of times online. When, when, when the left is in power, right-leaning Christians sound just like right-leaning pagans 
calling them everything in the book. When, when, when the opposite is true, when the right is in power, left-leaning Christians sound just like left-leaning pagans. Using the same language to talk about these people on the other side of the political aisle. Libertarian Christians do it no matter who's in office. I can think of only two, two, two ways to explain this. There may, there may be more, and I'm open to hearing these from you afterwards. The, 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 two, the two possible explanations for this are, are first, first of all, this. It's possible that our hope really isn't in a returning Christ, but it's the free market or social programs or the Second Amendment or any number of other political pets championed by our favored politicians. So when the opposing governing authorities threaten our hope, we lash out at them in our hearts and in the ears of other people. As far as explanations go for our attitude toward government, I think that's a strong contender. Our hope may be in the wrong place. I mean, it certainly seems like for many believers, the worst thing imaginable is socialism. The end of the American dream. The collapse of capitalism. If we believe the gospel, if we, if we embrace God's agenda as our own, we may prefer capitalism and, and use whatever legal means are afforded to us to preserve it. But believers in Jesus Christ ought not panic like it's the end of the world if it goes away. So when the end of the world comes, it's going to look way different than the collapse of an economic system. What did Peter say in chapter 1? What do we have? What do we have waiting for us in heaven? We have an inheritance being kept, in, kept for us in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We ought not regard earthly treasures to be our eternal hope, as if we have no inheritance being kept for us in heaven. If the gospel is true, and we really believe that, our hope is in a returning Christ not a particular economic system or standard of living or political climate. It's, it's truly frightening to me how there is a growing emphasis in some pockets of the church on human movements and human institutions to end misery and injustice as if those human institutions can change hearts. It seems to me that more and more, even from people that I really respect, true evangelistic mission is falling by the wayside. The gospel is being overshadowed. The gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Oh, my soul. We must guard against this. And it starts in our own hearts. Where is my hope? It's got to be in a returning Christ. It's got to be in the power of the gospel. Now, a second explanation, a second possible explanation for our dishonoring governing authorities. Could it be that our disrespect isn't so much driven by the fact that we just care too much about the future of our country? Maybe we're just rebellious. Maybe we're just disrespectful, period. Maybe that's just it. Either way, the result is the same. It's the devastation of our gospel witness. People, this is serious. This is serious. Rather than exhibiting transformed lives, we are just like everyone else in that we are practically incapable 
of respecting authority that we disagree with, even though we claim that all authority is from God, and even though we claim a gospel that transforms rebels into servants of that authority. Some questions are in order, perhaps. I'm going to ask these as collective questions. I encourage you to to make this personal to yourself. Do we really believe what the Bible says about authority? Do we really believe that God is the source of all authority? Do we really believe that God is in control of all authority and that he is working out his flawless plan for our good through these human authorities? Do we really believe that the heart of the king is like like a body of water in his hand. He turns it wherever he wills. Do we really believe this? Is that just a fairy tale in Proverbs? Is our hope really in a returning Christ? Or, if we're being honest, is it in treasures stored up on earth? If we're guilty of, of disrespect or, or disobedience to governing authorities, we must repent of these things for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of this mission with which we have been entrusted, which is proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light by submitting and honoring earthly governmental authorities, especially when we disagree. We demonstrate we have been transformed by the gospel. Our hope is not in this world and we are free free to serve God in every manifestation of his delegated authority, we demonstrate in that that our allegiance is to him above all earthly powers. Let's pray. Father, there may be some among us, some among us who are not guilty as it pertains to these things. If there are, we praise you that you have preserved some among us from discrediting your gospel in these ways. I stand before you as one who has failed I know that many others have as well. And so, Father, we, we pray for your forgiveness. We ask that your Holy Spirit would bring continued conviction that this is ungodly, that it discredits the message that we proclaim and that we must decide where our hope lies. Please, please, Hold in front of us the beauty of a risen Christ who's returning again. That He is our hope. And that is precisely why we can and must submit to all authority as He delegates it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well-